I remember at the, at the depths of that financial crash writing about how prosperous I felt in my journal, even though the outer lateral local evidence was I was worse than broke. Hi, I'm Brilliant, your host for this show. I know that I'm incredibly blessed. As the son of self-made billionaires, I've seen the high price some people pay for success, and I've learned that money really can't buy happiness. But I've also had the good fortune to learn directly from many of the world's leading teachers. If you're ready to be, do, have, and give more, this podcast is for you. My guest today is Dr. Dawson Church, author of Bliss Brain, the neuroscience of remodeling your brain for resilience, creativity, and joy. A huge part of what I love about Dawson's work is that it comes from this place of first healing trauma, which we all have our versions of, of course, with differing degrees of severity, but overcoming trauma. And then beyond that, achieving elevated states of consciousness, which of course is why he's named his book, Bliss Brain. I really enjoyed and appreciate in this book that Dawson talks about what's going on inside our brains and our bodies when we meditate helping to demystify, make comprehensible and actionable, and explain some of the benefits of meditation, taking it out of the realm of mysticism and making it very relatable, understandable, and doable. I myself have found that meditation has absolutely changed my life. I do a meditation group once a month because I believe in it so much and I have for about the last four years. One of the things I love about Dawson's work is that it's grounded in science. He's conducted dozens of clinical trials. He's founded the National Institute for Integrative Healthcare to promote groundbreaking new treatments. And he's also founded something called the Veterans Stress Project, which has offered free treatment to over 20,000 veterans with PTSD over the last 10 years. Dawson is also giving away a meditation and a tapping process that you can find at tappinggift.com that can help you to boost your immune system and stay healthier than you otherwise might, which is important while this coronavirus is still going around in a big way. You can learn more about Dawson at blissbrain.com or at his website, dawsonchurch.com. So with that, I hope you enjoy this conversation with my new friend, Dawson Church. Dawson, welcome to the School for Good Living. Brilliant. Wonderful to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Will you tell me, please, what is life about? <laughs> Gee, you start with the easy ones, don't you? <laughs> I'm just queuing you up for who are you. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what um, Ramana Maharshi used to do. He used to, have, used to have his students sit opposite each other and say, who are you? And the <laughs> other one says, who are you? And they keep it up for like five hours, after which they, their brain melts down and they, they get enlightened. Anyway, that's, that's, a total, that's a total aside. But, um, you know, what, what I really think it's all about, I think our life's journey is about two things. One is releasing trauma. You cannot reach your potential if you're weighed down by trauma. And when you read about these people, these, these great maybe masters, healers, saints who aspire to these elevated states, if they don't also go and heal trauma, 
that becomes the dark side, the shadow side, and it reaches out from that shadow and bites them. <laughs> and so we've seen this whole, just whole long list of you know, fallen masters in Buddhism and Hinduism and Christianity and Judaism and all these religions, these great people who were leading inspirational figures for millions of others, and then they crashed and burned in sex scandals or money scandals, and that's the dark side, the shadow side. So that's number one. You have to go heal trauma. And the second thing you have to do, or the second thing that becomes possible for you then, is to reach elevated states of consciousness. In my books, I call that oneness with non-local mind. And what it's all about, the journey of being human is releasing trauma and then learning to release our grip on everyday reality. The here and now, thinking I am Dawson wearing a blue shirt in California while Brilliant is in Utah and doing a podcast. I mean, all of our stuff about local reality, it's fine to manage local reality well. You want to run your life effectively, but not all 24 hours of the, 20, of the day, seven days a week, only maybe 23 hours. And the other hour you spend becoming one with the cosmos, letting go of local self, joining with non-local self and all the wisdom and love and compassion and gratitude and happiness that simply just inundates you from that place. So those that's what it's all about, letting go of trauma, number one. And number two, just abandoning yourself to the ecstasy that Rumi and Hafiz and St. Catherine and all of these great figures knew and just living your life from that place. That creates an extraordinary life on the local level. Yeah. I really appreciate that you start with this. And I find myself, especially as we're still in this pandemic, you know, about two years in almost, and we have all these major challenges facing us as a society, whether it's the climate change or the fires or, you know, what's going on in Afghanistan and, and all these different things that are so big and we all care, but I think many of us either don't believe that we're we have the power to do anything, or we don't know what to do. And reading your work, especially Bliss Brain, uh, which we'll talk more about, of course, uh, and, and hearing what you're saying now really gives me hope because specifically of what you say about emotional contagion. And sitting here thinking, if I, if I achieve, if I strive for this state of non-local you know, consciousness, if I, this oneness thing, what good does that do for anyone? <laughs> Aside from me, I might feel good for a little while, but reading uh, your work gave me a shift in, in hope that that might actually contribute to resolving some of the challenges we face. How do you see that? How do you see that? Absolutely. By healing yourself, you heal the world. By healing your trauma, you help heal the world. And this phenomenon of emotional contagion is really interesting. And it got going, that study got going in the 1950s. It was called the Framingham Heart Study. And they began studying people in Framingham, Massachusetts, in all kinds of dimensions of their lives. But then that data became a treasure trove. We now have five generations of people in and around Framingham. Some have moved data on all kinds of things about those, those people, intense intense amounts of, of data about them. And so what this has been used for amongst other purposes is happiness studies. And they find that there's a phenomenon called emotional contagion. Now, we this, the field of looking at infectious diseases is called epidemiology. It's a big tongue twister of a word, epidemiology. You get a PhD if you can just pronounce it. <laughs> <laughs> epidemiology. So they, there's epidemiologists began looking and applying the methods of epidemiology to emotion. And they found that emotions are as contagious as the, the pandemic virus. It's just extraordinary that emotions are passed from person to person. You walk into a room with a happy person, you, you are uplifted, 
But not only that, you uplift the next person you meet and they uplift the next person they meet who you do not even know. So positive emotions spread three layers out. Negative emotions spread two as well, but only two layers out. So that's why I'm so optimistic. I know that emotional contagion is real. So what these studies like Framingham Heart Studies show us is that when we elevate our consciousness, we then begin to elevate the consciousness of those around us and we create pods of, of happiness. The pandemic has been a really interesting one for me because um, I have a big community. I have millions of people who we, we talk to every, every year. We have hundreds of thousands of people on our email list and we reach with social media. And so just connecting with them has been interesting. And there are, you with, there have been two pandemics. And for one group of people, it's been hard. They have just crashed, either they crashed financially or emotionally or with all the election and the fake news and all the turmoil. And then there's this other group. And I spent time, for example, with a master uh, last week, brilliant. And, you know, we didn't talk about any of those things. We talk to each other. And when you are with those people who heal trauma and then got into ascended consciousness who are in that space, they're living a whole different world of resilience, creativity, joy, productivity, and they certainly know all the bad stuff going on, but they are not affected by it. And so the essential thing to do, I watched Bruce Lipton do this. I watched Jack Canfield do this. I watched Marion Williamson do this. I watched many of the people I worked with in my publishing career before my research career doing this they do not tune in for their source to the outside world. They tune in for their source to that transcendent reality. And then they create from that into local reality. Most people, though, have not figured out how to flip that switch from relating horizontally to relating vertically. And so they are sucked into this narrative. And it is a depressing narrative. And it's endless. I mean, this, once the pandemic's over, there'll be something else. Once that's something else is over, there'll be something beyond that. There are always, I, I counted my stories on my Google Newsfeed the other day. There were 80 stories by Google Newsfeed. There were always 80 stories. There were 80 stories before the pandemic, before the election, yeah. before, you know, there are always any, anything to be, to, be, to be worried about, and yeah, they'll yeah. always be there. So the trick is to flip the switch and orient yeah. horizontally. I love that. And, and I love that your book, Bliss Brain, teaches us how to do that. And the subtitle, the neuroscience of remodeling your brain for resilience, creativity, and joy, which is what I think we could all use right now. And by the way, congratulations on being number one. I don't even know if you're aware of this, but currently it's the number one bestseller on Amazon in the personal success and spirituality category, which is oh, pretty cool. cool. Okay. <laughs> yeah, with hundreds of reviews already. And, and I know your books have thousands of reviews total. Uh, but pretty favorable. And, and I read it and I took a lot away from it. Um, but I'm curious to know, why did you write this book? Who did you write it for? And what did you want it to do for them? I had wanted to write a book, After Mind to Matter, on what was happening to me. I became really curious about this because Mind to Matter was like this... When I wrote Genie in Your Genes, I began writing in around 2004. I just finished helping Bruce Lipton write The Biology of Belief. It was kind of a follow-on book from that. And I just had this insight, just this flash of meditation one day, that our genes are being affected by spiritual states, by belief, by emotion. And so I looked around for evidence for that. I found some. I began to write about it, wrote the book. And it was this flash of insight. 
And I thought, wow, I feel so grateful. And so for 10 years after Gene in Your Genes, I thought, wow, I'm so grateful to have had that flash of insight and written a book which sold over 100,000 copies, affected the lives of millions of people, just became required reading for a lot of courses and really had an impact. And I, I felt grateful to have been the channel for that, that piece of wisdom, grateful and, and amazed. And I did. I wrote a few little books after that, but nothing, nothing major. And I never thought that lightning would strike in the same place twice. And then I was talking to Reed Tracy at Hay House, and he wanted me to write a book on thoughts to things, mind to matter. So as I began to look into the link behind between mind and matter, I thought there'd be you know some scientific evidence that our thoughts create reality. What I was amazed to discover is that every single link in the chain between thoughts and things is scientifically provable. So that was a, a big revelation. It's like, wow, this is amazing. And I wrote the book and that book enjoyed extraordinary success. It sold over 100,000 copies right in the first year. It, it sold in Germany and France and Spain and all kinds of other places in the world. And so at that junction in, in my life, I was, I was focused on getting that message out that your thoughts create your reality, and there's a lot of science showing exactly how, how they do that. And then I was experimenting with some of the advanced exercises, some of the, 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 uh, the Tibetan, some of the Buddhists, some of the Christian mystics do, and I was experimenting with these ways of seeing the world and these exercises. And brilliant, I began to experience states of joy. Now, already I was a super happy human being. I mean, I'm just known for my laugh and my, you know, I, I, don't, I just have an absolutely blissed out life most of the time. And it just got better and better and better. And one crucial study in this brain, I said, is there an endpoint to brain development? Is there a point at which our brains have just gone as far as they can go? And I found this intriguing research into Tibetan monks who have done 19,000 hours of meditation. These are crazy experienced meditators. Comparing them to monks who've done an average of 43,000 hours of meditation. I mean, these guys are in a league by the, uh, their own. So they looked at the brains of the two, the two groups and by golly and by gosh, they kept changing. Even after 19,000 hours, the amygdala was atrophying. That's the, that's the brain's fire alarm. That's what, that's what sends the stress signal all the way through our central nervous system to our peripheral nervous system, to our, our, our organs. The, the amygdala is what sounds the alarm and triggers fight or flight. That part of the brain in those months was just withering away. Their nucleus accumbens was actually shriveling, shrinking, and atrophying. Nucleus accumbens is central in cravings. They just didn't crave or want anything. And when you have everything, you don't want anything. And the wanting part of the brain starts to wither. So I began to experience these states myself. And I said, we have got to share this with people because the degree of bliss you get during this work is absolutely extraordinary. And that was my motive for pulling that material together. I first taught it to my coaches. I have a coaching program. I trained my coaches to do this brain change coaching. And I thought I need a popular book, a book that will reach a lot of people with the message that you can be enormously happier than you are today. <laughs> and that was Bliss Brain. Yeah. And you don't have to meditate for 19,000 hours or 40,000 hours <laughs> to, to get there. No, you don't. Right. That was the model, you know, a thousand years ago. You could go to the monastery, meditate for, for 10,000 hours, 
become a novice, become an adept, another 10,000 hours, become an initiate, another 10,000 hours. Then after 30 or 40 years, you're a master and then you're happy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. After taking vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. So, <laughs> <laughs> so me being unable to give up Zinfandel wine or making love with my wife or paddle boarding or kayaking and all, all the other stuff uh, stuff I love or having two homes. I mean, I just, I just you know, poverty, chastity, and obedience was just not for me. And so not now, really, but neuroscience is showing us how to reach those states much more quickly. Yeah. And uh, I recently read something Eckhart Tolle wrote about, um, I think he said, the fires of suffering become the light of consciousness. Wow. Ah. I thought I'm that's a steal that quote. <laughs> yeah, isn't, that, isn't that beautiful? And, and, and I was struck by the synchronicity. And then as I was reading your book, because you open with a story about a literal fire, right? And in some ways that fire was in fact, did become the light of consciousness and had a big role in, it sounds like um, this book. And will you talk about that? Yeah. I, I opened the book with a fire story at the very beginning and I did that partly because the publisher said, don't just write a book about post-traumatic growth and just discuss it theoretically. Tell your story. This is, this is real stuff. So the first chapter of the book is fire and the uh, year after that. And so that night was just a, a, a crazy night, which I'll, I'll never forget. I, my wife shook me awake. She shook my shoulder. I looked at the alarm clock and said 12.45 a.m., and I looked out the window of our home in Northern California. We had a beautiful estate that was overlooking the Santa Rosa wine country valley. We had a warehouse on the property. We had an office building on the property. It was a gorgeous piece of land. I had a whole collection of antique cars. It was just like a dream property. And I saw this glow on the horizon at, through the window and I walked outside and there was this wildfire just racing down the opposite hill toward our, our, our valley and then our hill. And I just yelled at my wife, we're getting out of here right now. And I don't yell. I'm a super polite human being. I just don't yell. I don't swear. I just, just don't do that. So when she heard me say that, she got the message. We were getting out. Of, we literally sprinted through the house, grabbed the car keys and our cell phones, threw on just rudiments of clothing. The, the power failed. We were doing this in the dark. We then held hands, took a deep breath at the door. I thought, should I close the door? And I thought, I don't have time. We just sprinted for the car in this nightmarish scenario. The, the winds were gusting up to 70 miles an hour, and there were, there were embers being driven across our, our driveway like, like white snowflakes. They were like these white burning snowflakes hitting the car, hitting us. It was cr a crazy scene. As I got to the, the car, a huge tree just exploded behind the office building and we just jumped in the car and tore out of there, got away. And finally, when we were about three miles away, we realized we were safe, drove to my ex-wife's house to make sure that she and her family were safe. And then we just had to start dealing with that. And, and we, we were just completely disoriented. A friend sent us, a friend kind of got through the National Guard the next day, sent us images of what it was like in the other property. There was just... Uh, carpet of ash, concrete slab, chimney sticking out, and melted Rolls Royces, melted Jensen Healy's, melted Fiat's, melted office furniture, computers, everything was just ash. So that we saw that, and we realized that everything we had was, was gone. And so uh, we had a deal with, with that reality. 
And that's when we had to call in meditation, EFT, acupressure, tapping, all our other all our other tools, we had to tune into non-local, we had to do all of this, and we were now our our, our subjects. And so we, we had the experience. And it didn't, didn't stop there. The, the next year, we we lost everything, including our, our office, and we had a huge financial crash in our business. I had to drain my I had two retirement accounts, I had to drain one of them, and I still couldn't pay the bills, I had to drain the second one. And you know, being in your 60s and then going to zero for your retirement is not a fun thing. And then going to debt and taking out loans and eventually being hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt the following year, uh, not very pleasant. And so in that year afterwards, I found myself in debt, having lost everything. I'd have an operation to deal with a, a, a with, with an injury I, I sustained after the fire. And yet, brilliant, every morning I close my eyes, I meditate, I tune into non-local mind, and I'd be in absolute ecstasy. I remember at the, at the depths of that financial crash, writing about how prosperous I felt in my journal. I just wrote this long piece on how absolutely prosperous I knew I inherently was, even though the outer lateral local evidence was I was worse than broke. <laughs> the minor reality was I'm a prosperous human being. So that was, that was, that's chapter one of the book. And then, then I go into chapter two and talk about what's going on in the brains of meditators, people who reach these states and, and people who are resilient. And it turns out a huge amount of brain remodeling is going on. And that's what makes you able to cope with things. So if you've had something in your life, like a financial crash, a, a loss of a relationship, loss of possessions, know that it's possible to, that these, these tools may make you so resilient. And then you can meet the pandemic, you can meet the election, you can meet the challenges of life effortlessly because you are that person, you have that brain that not just as a state, but as a trait, a lifetime time trait, and nothing can take that away. Wow. Well, I'm really sorry for your loss. In a, in a way, I don't mean to be flippant. I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry, right? Because of where it's led you and what you've learned and what you've then been able to share. But I can imagine that must have been extraordinarily difficult. It was. And yet, you know, it was just the process of looking at what is, not being triggered by it, loving what is, as Byron Katie says, tuning into non-local and feeling this pervasive sense of well-being. That's what we find. We're doing a lot of research now on people who are in these elevated states, and they have this absolutely fundamental sense of okayness that I am I am fine, the world is, I am safe, the world is good, the universe is benevolent. It's a, it's a threshold they cross over at a certain point, and it's a neurological threshold. They've built enough brain tissue to know that I am that way. And so when you are that way, you, 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 you suddenly, I mean, you don't feel indifferent. I mean, 22 people died in the fire. Eight people died who were neighbors of ours because the fire was moving super fast about the speed of a football field every three seconds at that point. And so some of our poor neighbors were, they were stuck in their cars and the power went out and they were in their garages. They couldn't get their garage doors open or they went back for a dog or a pet and they died with a dog. And I mean, it was it's not like we, 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 we don't feel, we feel deeply. And yet we have this fundamental sense of well-being. And when you have that, that's resilience. So resilience isn't having a perfect life. Resilience is having the challenges to meet whatever comes to you in life. Yeah, what, a, what a great description. What, um, what woke up your wife? She had an intuition that something was wrong when she went to bed that night. 
and she checked the news and there was a little fire uh, that was like 20 miles away from us in the adjoining county. And so she heard that on the news and then just she felt uneasy and in, intuitively she she woke up. Wow. <laughs> One other thing that really touches me about that and reading your book and, you know, all I know of you is what I've read online and read your book and and now the few minutes of conversation we've had, but the the congruence with which you live, that there's many people, as I'm sure you've seen as well in this field of personal growth and self-help and spirituality that they maybe put one thing out and, but then their, their life is not necessarily congruent with that. And from what I can tell, there's a, a real integrity there with you. I love that term congruence it comes from NLP. They use it a lot. And um, I used to be in the publishing world and I was the publisher for a lot of best-selling authors, spiritual leaders. And uh, I said, the fastest way to disillusionment is to being the publisher of best-selling spiritual authors because you get to meet them and know find out about their dark sides. And it's like, oh, wow. Yeah, <laughs> so really yeah, we really train our people. Be, be congruent. Imagine there was a video camera in the corner of your room at all times watching you. And would, would you want the world to see how you're treating your child right now, treating your wife right now, treating your pets right now, treating yourself? What's your self-talk like? If there was a video camera and broadcasting your internal self-talk to the world, what would that be? That's, that's the congruence test is would you be comfortable if that were going out on national news? <laughs> yeah, that's a powerful way to, to think of that. Yeah. So on a topic of meditation, one thing I'd love to hear how you think about it, how you talk about it is, is this, and let me, let me try to set this up just a little bit. Meditation is something that has totally changed my life. And I arrived at meditation through, it was really a dark night of the soul, you know, where my dad had died. I had a son who was born prematurely, 20 brain surgeries. I was in a job I didn't love. My marriage was in crisis. I was having a faith crisis. It was, it was the darkest point in my life. And it was for me, literally that either I'll find a way to exist and hopefully thrive, but at least survive, or I'm going to make the decision to check out. And that was a time when Yogananda's autobiography of a yogi came into my life and totally inspired me to, to begin meditating. And it, and it did make a difference. And I tried a variety. I didn't find a guru or any specific method. I didn't go, you know, learn TM or anything like that. I just tried to close my eyes and found over the years, like, I'd stick to it and I'd drift from it. And sometimes it would work and other times I wasn't sure. And, you know, I didn't really know if I was doing it right. And like all this. So what I'm curious to know from you is when you teach meditation, when you talk about it, how do you describe it? Cause this is one of those big words, right? Like love or God that people either don't understand or, you know, they get something, maybe they get some, I don't know, there's anything to get wrong about it, but how do you, when you start teaching it or talking about it, how do you even begin you know, brilliant. I am. I have come to the conclusion. I'm coming to the conclusion that we've got it all wrong in terms of why meditate and what meditation is. And so, meditation is an ancient tradition, goes back tens of thousands of years, and it was the best we had before psychology try and make us a little bit less unhappy. And so, it was this practice Christianity has contemplative uh, reading and prayer, lectio divina. In Latin, uh, Buddhism has meditation, Hinduism has meditation. Many faiths have some way of relating to something larger than ourselves like that. And then psychology came along and said, well, it's the mind, and the mind can make us happy. And what I am coming to the conclusion of, and 
there's not a lot of evidence for this yet. There's interesting evidence, preliminary evidence. It's not spirituality. It's not psychology. It's biology and especially the volume of tissue in our brains. And uh, a while back, for example, I, uh, I, I thought, you know, Jason Momoa, Jason Momoa is this, this, this actor. He plays Khal Drogo in Game of Thrones and he plays uh, Aquaman. And this guy is just built like a tank, just amazing muscles. And so I looked up what Jason Momoa's bicep size was, what the size of his biceps. His biceps are 18 inches around. So I then got a tape measure over here. It's my drawer right over here. And I, I measured my biceps. And guess what? They're not 18 inches around. They're 13 inches around, which is the average for a man in his 60s like me. So um, I could want to bench press 400 pounds, but I can't. Jason Momoa can. He has the volume of musculature to bench press 400 pounds. At my 13-inch bicep size, I can have the intention, I can have the knowledge, I can have the strong desire to do that, I can have all my ducks lined up in terms of, of, of my attitude and my mindset. I still can't do it. I just don't have enough bulk over here. It's just, just a fact. So that's the big thing we've been missing. And what you have to do is simply build up certain circuits in your brain big enough to where you can have that kind of experience. And so that's really what meditation is. Meditation is simply a way, if you do it effectively. Now, most meditation in this brain, I look at all the studies, and what the studies show us is that what most people do and try meditation is useless, and a lot of it's counterproductive, and there are only a few things that really move, move the needle in terms of actually triggering neural plasticity and brain growth. So you want to do those things. But then if you spend that hour or half hour and you literally are building up your those circuits in your brain, then you have this the, a big enough circuit. So what meditation actually should be thought of is, is like going to the gym for your brain. And there are four circuits in this brain I talk about. I won't go into them at at, in detail here, but the first one I say you need to build up is the emotion regulation circuit. And there's a whole circuit in your brain. It's very well mapped in neuroscience. And you've got to build up the emotion regulation circuit first. There are three others. Don't mess with those. Don't, don't go try to do attention or do compassion first. Do emotion regulation first, because if you can regulate emotion, regulate your anger and your resentment and your blame and all your negative emotions, then you can go on and do more stuff, interesting stuff beyond that in terms of brain development. But you first have to build up that circuit. And then I have a, I have a, a case history of a man called Graham Phillips, who went on an eight week meditation course. And he was a TV journalist. And so he had his whole crew come into a neuroscience lab where they measured the volume of every single part of his brain using a high definition MRI scanner. He found that after two weeks of meditation, he was calmer, feeling better. After eight weeks, he went back in the lab and they found that the emotion regulation center of his brain had grown by 22.8% in only eight weeks. In wow. other words, the emotion regulation center is growing about 10% a month. That, imagine if your biceps grew by 10% a month, if you worked out right. Meditation is working out those, is triggering neural activity in those circuits to where they build more synapses, they become faster and better at signaling. You, build, you bulk them up, 
big enough, like Jason Momoa's muscles, and then you can bench press the infinite. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. That's so great. And you've created, uh, as I read about this, I kind of thought of it like Bruce Lee, where my understanding, and I'm not a martial artist, but my understanding is through his years of study and practice that he, in some ways, like dispensed with some of the the ornate aspects of Kung Fu and just went to what worked with this combination of martial arts and creating Jeet Kune Do. And, And what I understand of what echo meditation is is that it's kind of the same thing, right? Will you talk about what it is and how you arrived at it and what it can do for people? And I, you know, this, this, the, the, the book has actually um, offended some people because they have a favorite meditation style and they are, you know, they're, they're offended that I'm not endorsing that style. What I'm doing though, is I'm just saying, hey, this is what science shows works. I'm not coming on any particular school of meditation here. I'm saying there are MRI studies all I'm focused on here is what triggers the quickest kind of the, the, the fastest neural growth. That's all I'm focused on here. So um, neuroscience studies show us that there are, are certain things that really trigger that growth quickly. And there are seven styles of meditation I talk about in the book. One of them is moving meditation. And there's qigong and there's yoga and there's tai chi. Wonderful way of moving your body while you meditate. There are verbal forms of meditation. Some people chant, oh, or chant the name of a saint. You know, Gandhi died chanting the name of God. After he was shot, his last words, he was in bliss, chanting the name of God. That's that's how you want to go out, like like, like Mahatma Gandhi. Um, So uh, there are all these different styles. I recommend people play around and just find ones that work for them. Some people aren't good at sitting it's too static for them. So you play around with that, but then do the things that science shows are really effective. And those are meditating groups, if you can. I have an imaginary group. So I just meditate with my imaginary group. I don't have an actual physical group. And so I think some effect has been gained from that. The research is unequivocal, unequivocally clear that meditating in a group produces faster neuroplasticity than meditating alone. The second thing is that you want to focus on compassion. Compassion moves the needle in terms of neuroplasticity faster than anything else. And the third one is intensity. You want to feel that intensity. Don't just sit there like and and feel like I'm okay. I'm having a nice time here. Be passionate. Read the poetry of St. Teresa or or Rumi, I mean, these people were not sitting there like dweebs, having a little sweet experience all by themselves. They were just shaking with passion. They were describing their experience in orgasmic terms. They were exploding with ecstasy. You want that kind of meditation. So uh, that's really what we, we recommend people do. They try a lot of different things, but then whatever style of meditation, if you're doing dance, you can do ecstatic dance and do it in the community. You mean, just do whatever style you use. Make sure you've got those, those three things going for you. Yeah. And in the book, you do walk the reader through how they can do this for themselves. Right. And you've just talked about it, of course, part, big parts of it. And then one thing I really appreciate about the book as well is that you point to resources that are free for the reader recordings that you've made and other, um, other tools and resources that, that seem pretty thoughtful to me beyond just drafting a book and putting it between two covers and sending it out into the world. There's a lot to doing a successful book. And so there's a lot of science in the book. 
There are a lot of case histories, stories of people who've used the techniques and what they've experienced. And then at the end of each chapter, there are deepening practices. And these are usually free meditations and other uh, resources. But there are eight free meditations in Bliss Brain, and they really move the needle. We did an MRI study, randomized controlled trial, quite a large one, 24 people, 12 doing mindful breathing for a month, 12 doing eco meditation, which is a method that I developed over the last 15 years or so. Again, totally science-based, totally physiological, no uh, saint or guru or religion required. And so the secular meditation, just doing these mechanical things to put you in a deep meditative state. And we found that nothing happened for the mindful breathing people in a month. Profound brain changes happened in the people doing eco-meditation. And so we give you these free eight eight free eco-meditations, one at the end of each chapter. And people using those, uh, they, they, they really are designed to get you hooked because they spike dopamine. And dopamine is your main craving neurochemical. It's the main neurochemical of cocaine, heroin, chocolate, other craving-based addictive types of, of, of substances. And so we want to get, have you, give you a big slug of dopamine. Research shows that meditation done right can produce a 65% increase in dopamine. So that's going to get you hooked. You're basically as addicted to your meditation after you do eco-meditation as that heroin junkie sprawled on the sidewalk with a needle. <laughs> a pretty big, pretty big claim. <laughs> you present a lot of evidence, and I know you yeah. have many people that you've led this through who also speak in glowing terms of it. And not just dopamine, right? I, one of the things I was interested in in, in this book is that, is that you do go very much into the anatomy and the physiology uh, that we have, and, and even this acronym, Sondanobi, right, about these... I, and I'd, I'd heard about this, but I didn't think about, it. I don't connect this with my daily practice of, Hey, when I sit down to do this, I'm triggering the release of these, you know, these hormones or these neurochemicals. But I thought, of course, something's happening, right? I'm having an experience and something's going on physiologically with me. Well, you, the question I have for you is, is actually, this is what did you learn that most surprised you when it comes to like our neurochemistry and our anatomy and our physiology in the process of writing this book? Well, I, first of all, it was experiential. I was getting so happy in meditations after the fire and before the fire as well, but especially after the fire, I'd lost everything. And I was just, just amazement at, at my own, my own happiness. I thought, why is that? I remember one of my team members like really annoyed me during a team meeting. She said, Dawson, this company is falling apart. It's in, on, the, on the ropes. And here you are, just this blissful, smiling presence. I appreciate that. But do you fail to realize what trouble we're in? And so it's like, you, you, you don't fail to realize that. And yet you have, have this, 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 this serenity that is, is beyond that. So f first of all, it was my own experience of just having this, this elevated experience every day, despite all of the chaos around me. And then I thought, what is that? What is going on in my brain? You feel like you're stoned. Then I looked at some images painted of the great saints, St. Catherine of Siena, St. Teresa of Avila, St. Francis of Assisi, um, uh, Ramakrishna, he was an Indian saint of the late, late 1800s, early 1900s, and he would go into samadhi, bliss. He might be walking down the street and he would literally freeze in samadhi and he'd just be gone. And so his disciples would literally pick him up and carry him back to the ashram and set him down. He might stay there for two or three days or two or three hours, and then he'd unfreeze and come back 
And so this, these ecstatic states you can get into, I mean, they're, they're accessible, they're, they're, they're flow states, and yet they're just on steroids. So I began to experience those, I began to look into the neurochemistry of them. And the cool thing was when I began to look for their drug equivalents, and like one study showed beta endorphin, you produce beta endorphin in meditation. And beta endorphin and morphine, synthetic morphine, have the same chemical structure. There's this lock and key molecular model, and the beta endorphin molecules dock with receptor sites in your brain, and they deaden pain. So the reason morphine works, so the millions of compounds there are in plants, why does one work, morphine work? Because it has the same molecular structure as your, your brain's own native beta endorphin. So I discovered that there were these drug equivalents. Then I began to look at the, uh, the dosage and efficacy of them. Beta endorphin is three times as potent as morphine. It's really strong stuff. I mentioned that 65% rise in dopamine in the brain. Serotonin is the same as psilocybin. Psilocybin magic mushrooms works because it docks with serotonin receptors. Oxytocin makes you feel wonderful, full of love. So oxytocin is active. That triggers nitric oxide, triggers anandamide, the bliss molecule. That's why you are totally stoned after you do eco-meditation. You just disappear into non-local bliss for a while, you know, but maybe 15 minutes, 20 minutes, half an hour. And then part of our safety protocol is you, you may wonder why every eco-meditation ends with, take a look around you, find the number eight in your environment. Is there anything, is there an eight around you? What time of day is it? What is the time? What is the biggest red object in, in the room? We have you return to the outside world. The old model of mysticism was going out there and staying out there. The new model is you go out there and you come back. So we want to orient people after their big time drug trip with all the serotonin and oxytocin and anandamide and get them back in their bodies and ground them again so they can go about their daily life safely. Yeah, I, I love that. And someone recently introduced me to this idea of the, the marketplace in the mountaintop that we can have this mystical experience or something approaching it on the mountaintop, so to speak, but then come back into our daily lives as householders and business people and parents and live in the marketplace. But that's fantastic. And, and the thing too, about that acronym again, is you just ran through these neurochemicals, Sondanobi about uh, how there's seven, right? You talk about how there's like these seven and how I, I was interested. I did geek out a little bit on some of the science of the endogenous and exogenous, what we produce internally and externally and how it really is amazing that our body can produce all of this if we learn how, or if we're willing, perhaps, you know, it's pretty yes. incredible. Yeah. I mean, our body can produce all these things endogenously, like marijuana is basically a THC molecule docks with anandamide receptors in the brain. And so you sit there in meditation and essentially you're, you're, you're having this wonderful experience generated entirely by your own brain, no side effects, no chance of an overdose, no chance of an ab reaction because it's a natural molecule that is created by your own brain. And you can crank them way up so you feel a certain level. Again, that's the third of those three things, intensity. If you feel a sense of joy, ask yourself, can I feel this more intensely? Can I up level this to absolute ecstasy? And you'll find that very often 
you can. So uh, it's it's amazing to realize you, you can create this, these pleasure chemicals in your own brain. And you then basically start to have a way more pleasurable experience in your whole life. Yeah. Yeah. And I was interested too, in the point about the ones that are naturally occurring, that the body knows how to like metabolize or process them and they yes. break down more quickly so that we can live healthy, not have this external chemical in us that we don't necessarily want or need after a certain point. But that was interesting. Um, well, let me ask you this before we transition to the enlightening lightning round, what, if anything, have we not talked about that, uh, related to bliss brain or your work or, or anything else that you think would be a, that you want to talk about, or you think would be a benefit to the listener? Well, these advanced states sound wonderful and are wonderful and people have been aspiring to them for thousands of years. And so the other half of the coin that I teach is I had a 15 year career in studying psychological trauma. I looked into why people were so traumatized. I began to do to do not nonprofit projects. We founded the Veterans Stress Project in 2007 to get EFT, acupressure tapping to veterans. And so that's the part that is, is, is essential as a foundation is to heal trauma. So before I began to look at elevated states, I spent roughly a decade studying psychological trauma. I did many randomized controlled trials. I did some studies of things like epigenetics showing that when we heal PTSD in veterans, that it produces epigenetic changes in their bodies. It's an epigenetic signal turning off, for example, inflammation. It dials down inflammation genes, literally regulates inflammation genes. And then it also does it in a way that boosts immunity. So all these wonderful epigenetic effects are happening inside your body when you heal trauma. And so that's really a big focus for me. It still is. In fact, we've just rebuilt the Veteran Stress Project website. We're getting ready to launch it even bigger. We uh, work with people in the VA. Right now, I am raising money to send VA personnel, clinicians through that trauma training free. So we're sending both veterans who want to become clinicians and VA therapists through that training at no charge. We want these techniques in VA hospitals where veterans are. And so it's incredibly important to translate your wonderful ideas, wonderful concepts into the level of human suffering. We, yeah. we have teams of volunteers who go to places like... Um, like Newtown, Connecticut, after the school shootings there, there's a huge amount of work that's been done there to alleviate PTSD among the teachers, among the parents, among the surviving students. We've gone to, we, went, we had a team, volunteer team, go to the Parkland school shooting area, do the same thing. So you want to be effective in the world over here as well. And it doesn't matter, you, you, you know, you, you don't turn, turn a blind eye to racial injustice right now. I'm really working with some of our African-American practitioners on really putting anti-racism front and center everywhere that we have a presence. Uh, so I'm just passionate about translating all of these elevated states into effective social action as well. And part of it is healing this massive trauma we have around all these things, all these things like, like race, like slavery, like, like psychological trauma, like child abuse, sexual abuse, healing those in our society. But I believe, Brilliant, we will do it really quickly because now we have so much evidence showing EMDR, with yoga therapy, with, with tapping, we can take people who have severe psychological trauma and we can undo that 
very, very quickly. So I want to make sure we just don't, don't gloss over that, that, that really important part. You know, the elevated states are great. Go meditate, do those things and tap, release, breathe, and let go of that trauma buried in your body. Yeah. Now, thank you for, for pointing that out because I realize for anyone that wasn't familiar with your work before now, if they had listened to the conversation in process, they might've just thought it was the pursuit of these <laughs> elevated states and so forth. And there's value there, but they might not have been aware of that, those decades of work and, and healing around that trauma. And that's, that's significant. So thank you for that. Okay. Uh, well, with your permission, I want to go ahead and transition us to the enlightening lightning round. How are you doing? Great. Good. Okay. Awesome. So again, this is a series of questions on a variety of uh, topics. Uh, you're welcome to answer them, your response, as long as you want. My aim for the most part is to simply ask the question and kind of stand aside and keep us moving, but here we go. Okay. Question number one, please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. <laughs> Life is like a invitation to bliss. All right. Question number two. Here I'm borrowing Peter Thiel's question. What important truth do very few people agree with you on? We are meant to live lives expressing our full potential. And we have it as children. I have grandchildren and they just live their lives and their potential. Babies laugh an average of 120 times a day. Adults laugh an average of six times a day. What happens between one point and the other to shut down 95% of your laughter? Whatever happened, it's not real. You need to release it. And you can have that fabulously happy life that you imagine. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. All right. Question number three. If you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? Live exuberantly love extravagantly. Mm. All right. Question number four, what book other than one of your own have you gifted or recommended most often? Hands down the success principles by Jack Canfield and second runner up is money master the game by Tony Robbins. The, if I'd had those books when I was 20 or 30, my whole life would have been way easier for the next 20 years. So I give these to my kids. My, I give these to my housekeeper in Spanish. <laughs> wow. That's how you know it's a good book. That's great. Okay. Question. Uh, now I'm curious, what are you currently reading? Oh, you know, financial literacy, you know, that, 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 that's, that's essential. So you know, success, success principles from Jack Canfield, the, 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 the how-to for success, the book by Tony Robbins, being financially literate. I'm reading a really interesting book right now called uh, How Emotions Are Made. And um, it shows that we, it, it basically just throws out about 85% of the research into, into emotions that we've had for the last hundred years and says, we literally make, create and choose our emotions. There are hundreds of them. You don't have to feel sad when that bad thing happens. You can choose to feel neutral about it. And you can, you have, we have, far more choice research shows. We have far the most recent research shows. We have far more choice than we traditionally believe. Yeah. That's powerful. That's the, is a Harvard researcher, Teresa yes. Am, Am, Amabil or something. Amabil, yeah. Teresa Amabili is the author of a study that showed that if you get into an elevated state for an hour, the effect persists for 48 hours after that. So 
Wow. And That's then I forget the name of the, the author who wrote uh, How Emotions Made, but she's also a really experienced neuroscientist. That's awesome. Okay, question number five. So in your life, you've traveled a lot. What's one travel hack, meaning something you do or something you take with you when you travel to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? <laughs> travel light, for goodness sake. Don't drag it there and drag it back again. Um, so that's that's one thing. The other is just, just travel stress-free. Um, don't try and shave time off getting to the airport. If anything bad happens, just be totally centered and take it as a chance to meditate. Say you, you miss a plane or a, a, a plane is delayed. That's that's your chance to meditate. If there's a long line at security, how wonderful, there's a long line, how wonderful. I can breathe, I can tune into the infinite. Thank you for this moment of grace. So just using tapping, using meditation to release your stress. And then the trip can be a disaster. <laughs> and you'll be happy. I'll, I'll tell you one little story about, about my most recent disastrous happy trip. I had a very difficult, in my business, very difficult 2019. We had a very successful year that year financially, but, uh, but we had a lot of challenges in business. I was working a lot of 80-hour weeks. By the time 2020 rolled around, I was really ready for a one-month vacation in Hawaii. So this is before the pandemic. I packed my bag, bags just before the pandemic, February I was going to fly to Hawaii, spend a whole month scuba diving, boogie boarding with my wife. We were going to go hiking all over the islands. We, were going to, we had this whole trip planned. And the week before, I was presenting at a, at a conference in Panama, city of the, the, county, the uh, country of Panama in Central America. And I had, there was an accident and I injured my, my leg. Uh, and I, I I wasn't diagnosed for weeks, but it turned out that I had a, I torn my Achilles tendon all the way through, and I was in excruciating pain a lot of the time, couldn't walk. So there I was in Hawaii for my long-awaited reward vacation after twelve months of hell at work, and here I'm there for for a month with this huge suitcase packed with scuba gear and boogie board and stand-up paddleboard and all the stuff, and I I couldn't even walk, let alone do any of those things, and I decided. The first day when I collapsed in the airport, my wife had to sort of use a use a cart to get me to the rental car. I said, I'm just gonna be in bliss the whole month anyway. And I'd look at my big suitcase every every day with all my gear I couldn't use. And I was just at a hundred out of a hundred in terms of bliss. So really you can do this no matter what happens in travel. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet you're a great traveling companion. <laughs> That's great. I've traveled with some people that I wish I'd stayed home after the trip was underway, but, um, okay. Question number six, what's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? Anything to excess, um, eating to excess, alcohol to excess, um, certainly worry to excess. There was a study published last year showing that it was a really interesting Alzheimer's study. And it used to be the only way you could study Alzheimer's and the buildup of beta amyloid plaques in the brain was after people died. They do postmortems, they find that Alzheimer's patients had all these beta amyloid plaques, but there are new MRI scanners that allow the brains of patients to be examined non-invasively and they just point a scanner at you. They can see how much beta amyloid plaque you have. And so they did this, this long-term study of Alzheimer's patients and looked at all the risk factors, lifestyle, everything. And what they found to their astonishment 
was the factor that correlated most with Alzheimer's disease and the buildup of beta amyloid plaques was negative thinking. And it scaled. The more negative thinking, the greater and faster the buildup of beta amyloid plaques in the brain. It wasn't genetics. If you know about the apogene, 3-4, you'll think it was genes. It, it trumped genes. It was, it was all about attitude and about thought, about negative thinking or positive thinking. So the thing you want to give up, really, do not think another negative thought ever again in your life. Do not allow yourself the luxury of a negative thought. If I hook you up to an EEG and you think one, it'll show up right away in the form of increased increased cortisol, it'll start to, to mess your, your internal biology. Just go cold turkey, quit. You don't want those negative thoughts at all. <laughs> yeah, that's. I think that's good advice. And I, I do think that that might be easier said than done for many people. I mean, especially given that our biology right, is conditioned for survival and always looking okay. for what's wrong and what can hurt us. But what, um, I mean, aside from the hour we've just spent talking about meditation, what advice do you have for somebody that, that they're going, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm willing, I'll, I'll trust you, Dawson. I'll move in that direction. I'll give up my negative thinking, but then they find themselves back on that, that hamster wheel of that, you know, the squirrel cage of negative self-talk. What do you say to somebody that's kind of struggling with giving up their negative self-talk? Well, we'll give you the resources to download my EFT mini manual, but the most effective quick invention is tapping. So tapping is just tapping on acupuncture and meridian endpoints like this. There's, there are 13 of them on the body we tap on. And what we find is when people tap on those things that they just very, very quickly shift. I worked with one Iraq veteran and he, he'd been in Iraq as a medic. And as a medic, he saw horrible things, dismembered civilians, members of his own, of his own uh, group shot. It was just a nightmare for him being deployed in Iraq. And one day, one of his friends was killed and his job as a medic was to prepare the uniform for sending back to the man's family in the US. And so he had to clean the blood and body tissues off of the uniform, out of the helmet. And after being in the Iraqi sun, for a few days, it smelled terrible. He literally was dunking the unit, dunking the, uh, the uniform in a, in, a, in, a, in a solvent in the medic's hut, running outside, hyperventilating to take a deep breath, running back in, dunking it some more, and then running back out just to get a breath because it smelled so bad. And so I tapped with him. He had had intrusive thoughts about that since he got back from Iraq years later. And we just did this. He told the story, but he didn't tell the story like I'm telling it now. He told it while tapping. He was tapping on his acupuncture points and his stress just melted away. He went from a 10 out of 10 in terms of grief and anger and all these negative emotions. He went down to a zero in about 30 minutes. It's that effective. So if you can't get out of the hamster wheel of negative thinking, just download the free manual and just tap. It's just so easy. You just tap. So you're, th you're saying these things, you're thinking these things, but you're tapping. And what we see, see in, the, in, the, in MRI scans and EEGs is it rapidly calms down the emotional brain. When you think of the bad stuff, your emotional brain lights up. When you think of the bad stuff and tap, it reverses the effect. It literally is like taking a light switch and shutting off the emotional brain. So if you want a fast way of letting go of negative thinking, tapping is just the quickest way you can possibly do it. Yeah, that, that's interesting to me. 
to hear you share that because I would have thought, and I think this is how many people probably think of, I can combat negative thinking with, with, I'll just overpower with positive thinking, or I'll just somehow try harder. But instead, what I hear you saying about this tapping that actually it, of course, it's part of our um, nervous system, our physiology that can help us to relax that, that part of our brain and, and our nervous system that will allow that negative thinking to calm and, and dissipate. And I, I learned this um, I learned some tapping techniques from Jack Canfield when I studied with him about 10 years ago. And I experienced for myself the calming effect. And, and although I don't think I've had anything at all, like, you know, that kind of PTSD, just immediately in a training room, I could feel, I remember Jack gave us the subjective units thing. Yes. So you'd, cause it's easy to forget, right. Where you were and where you are. And, and so I've experienced it myself, but then as I've learned a lot of different things in the world of personal growth and, and so forth. I come across this. I'm, I'm a little bit reluctant to ask this, but I just looking online, I see, so I'm qualifying this by saying I've experienced the benefit personally. I've heard others talk about the benefit to them and the people they work with, but I've also read a lot about how tapping is considered by many to be a pseudoscience. And I'm wondering why is that? Why is this not more like scientifically accepted? Yeah, well, there are about 100 clinical trials of EFT. You can see them all at the website research.eftuniverse.com. EFT Universe is my site, and we make it really easy to get to that free research page, research.eftuniverse.com. You'll find all kinds of clinical trials. You'll find MRI studies. You'll find EEG studies. You'll find studies of diabetics, pregnant women, people awaiting surgery, over 100 clinical trials. And so there's a huge evidence base for it. And there's a huge evidence base for energy medicine. There are over a thousand acupuncture trials that have been published over the last like 20, 30 years. But if you go to Wikipedia, for example, it'll say acupuncture is pseudoscience. It'll say it's quackery. Uh, it'll say that um, EFT is pseudoscience and EFT has, has no merit. And that's because around 2003, 2004, when Wikipedia was in its infancy, a group of, they call themselves skeptics, seized control of all of the natural health pages, homeopathy, acupuncture, and natural medicine. And they then deleted all the authoritative articles on, on there, ones that followed Wikipedia's rules, and just rewrote them to call them pseudoscience. And it's been a battle. If you go into the talk pages, you'll see scientists and, and qualified people try and go in there and correct those articles. And the... Um, the Wikipedia skeptics simply immediately revert them back to the way they are. So there's this hardcore of skeptics there. And uh, that's why Wikipedia is the way it is. They deleted biographies, like they deleted my biography. Um, and even though I'm the author of several best-selling books and the author, you know, I've been involved in over hundred studies. Um, my books have been translated in probably over 20 languages. Uh, I've, I've won multiple awards for my books. When I looked in, in the talk pages behind my deleted biography, it said, this is a person of no public interest. One of the skeptics wow. just deleted it. So they control all those pages. They deleted Donna Eden's bio biography. So it's just a, a, a you, you go kind of look at, at, at the, the sources of, it's kind of like, like the COVID misinformation. Wow. Uh, there are all these, these sites that um, put out bad science. And so you have to be discerning about where you get your information. Yeah, absolutely. That, that makes sense to me. And, and I, I believe you know, the ultimate laboratory is our own lives for each of us and to try things and see what 
our experiences, see what results we produce. And, and, uh, I tend, I like to think of myself as very open-minded and, and I, and I also recognize that the history of science is the history of being wrong. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's the way science works. We form a hypothesis and we test and so forth. So, uh, I realized that, you know, just because something's said online about this is pseudoscience or it's valid science, you know, ultimately we, we try, we, we get to try, try it ourselves and trust ourselves. So thank you for that. Okay. So I'm going to keep us going through the enlightening lightning round. I know we're coming down the stretch on our time overall. So just a few more questions here and then a few about writing and the creative process. Okay. Okay. So question number seven, what is one thing you wish every American knew? I wish America generally as a society looked beyond its borders for solutions more. And I'll give you an example. Our healthcare system costs roughly double what any other developed country's healthcare system costs and delivers much worse outcomes. If you look at the rankings of countries, we're around 20, number 20 for all kinds of indicators of quality of health. And it's because we just don't look at what Canada's doing, what Britain's doing, what France and Germany are doing. There are a lot of far better ways of giving everyone healthcare than the one we have. So America is very has this sort of, you know, the American exceptionalism really hurts us in many ways. Uh, we often, I mean, the, the Paris Climate Accord was a miracle in 2015 that, that, that we signed it and now we rejoined it. Um, but so often Americans are looking only at their own, their own backyard. So uh, America as a whole often gets tripped up by American exceptionalism rather than multilateralism. And I just love to see Americans be more, look more, say, you know, like if you, if you were building a car, you'd say, well, who's building the best car and what can I learn from them? If you were building a cell phone, you'd look, look at the best practices and what are the most advanced features. You wouldn't say, I'm only going to look at cell phones which are manufactured in my city and, and, and refuse to incorporate any features not invented locally. It just make, it's just nuts. So that's one of the silly things about America that I wish were more collaborative and outward looking. Yeah, I'm with you on that. What's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about making relationships work? Well, I, um, I have a chance to practice that every day with my wife. And um, in fact, we have a whole course on relationship skills, just basic skills that you use, use to things like active listening and tapping and, and breathing together and various other, other skills. And so one of the things I, need, I have to do consciously, I'm not that good at, is, is being in my heart. Uh, brilliant. I, I live a lot of the, my work life and my work day in my head. I'm talking to scientists. I'm talking to brilliant people. I'm, I'm up here. And my wife teaches art to children, and she also is an artist herself. And so when I, we both get off work around six or seven o'clock at night, she really doesn't want a brain dump of the newest scientific theory I've come up with during the day. <laughs> she wants a husband who's going to relate to her. And so I, I move from my head into my heart. And I, I first of all, I start by listening to her. It's just listen. I don't try and advise her. I just listen appreciatively to her. And I move from my head to my heart. And so with my children, with my grandchildren, I move my, my head to my heart. When I'm dealing with team members often, often our team conversations are very heady. So I try and move to my heart and, and be there. So I think if you can 
everything to do with the body, tapping is somatic. Meditation done well is a physical process you feel in your body. And so living in your body, PTSD is healed when you can stay in your body and remember your past experiences. So, so staying in the heart, staying in the body is critical for a high quality relationship. Yeah, that's, that's really beautiful. And more than 150 interviews, I don't think anybody has quite said, said that or said it that way, but I, I'm grateful for that. Okay. And question number nine. So this one is about money and it's aside from compound interest, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about money? I believe in financial literacy. And when people go to high school, they get no classes in financial literacy and they're just dumped into the world, not knowing the basic skills about, about money. So it's important to educate yourself. You didn't get the education in school, just go take some classes. There are free, just type in financial literacy into a search engine and go take a free class. There are lots of really good ones out there and educate yourself about money. So it starts with money education. Now you may do many different things after that point. You may decide to keep a job and go the route of having a steady income. You may become an entrepreneur. You may want to work on, have real estate. It doesn't matter what you do, but become financially literate. And where I see people failing is often they're making a lot of money and then less than financially literate, they're not able to keep it and have a secure future. So become financially literate is the basic requirement. Makes a lot of sense. Well, speaking of money, um, something I have done to uh, show gratitude to you for sharing your knowledge and, and your experience with me and everyone listening is I've gone, I've done two things. So one is I've gone on Kiva.org and I've made a micro loan to a woman entrepreneur named Jacqueline in Cameroon. She's 52 <laughs> years old. She's raising three children. And uh, so she'll use this money to buy and sell produce, which she's done at a little stand in her hometown for 15 years. So, yeah, so that's, that's the first thing. The other is I went to, um, stresssolution.org, the veteran stress solution, which you talked about earlier that you're involved with. And I made a hundred dollar donation. I believe in the work you're doing to train those veterans to offer this to other veterans. It's, it's a really beautiful vision. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. And, uh, you, you can just donate right through the site there. And we just love sharing with people. We have a ton of volunteers to actually do the work with people, with veterans. So it supports that whole effort. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay. So congratulations. You survived the enlightening lightning round. We're just <laughs> at the final part of the interview here is, uh, is about writing in the creative process. So just a few questions. I want to start with the fact that you worked in the publishing industry for many, many, many years before you yourself became an, a published author, right? Will you talk about um, how and why you entered the industry and then how you made that transformation to be, to be a writer who's now written, if I understand right, more than a dozen books and three of them yeah. bestsellers? Yeah, so, several bestsellers. Yeah. And I didn't think of myself as having anything to say. I, I was the guy who managed publishing campaigns. So I was the guy behind the scenes making sure the the mechanics of publishing all worked. I did not see myself as having anything valuable to contribute to the discussion. I felt really gratified that I was able to take the work of great authors and help make it visible in the world. I was very focused on alternative medicine at the time. So we really raised that whole uh, world of alternative medicine up to a much more professional level. And so I, I did that and I thought that was my, my basic thing to do in the world. And then I began to talk 
give lectures about publishing initially, and people responded well. And then I got into the whole idea of epigenetics and began to talk about epigenetics, and I was making connections that no one else was. I wrote The Genie in Your Genes, and then I began to talk about that. And I discovered people were spellbound, and suddenly I... Um, people weren't just listening. They were glued to their, their seats and they were, they were beginning to shift their lives dramatically. I realized I, I had an impact on, on the world through, through speaking and, and writing. So I began to then develop that. And like any craft you have, you want to get better at it. I read books, I read books analytically and critically. And I say, how can what I'm learning from this brilliant writer make me a better author? And so I, I, I sit and listen to Joe Dispenza, and I listen to Bruce Lipton, and I listen to uh, Marion Williamson, I listen to other Transformation Leadership Council members like Marcy Shymoff, and I learn from them how to be a better presenter, a better writer. And so you want to keep on honing your craft that way. But the, I eventually discovered I could do that, do it well, and really influence people. And, you know, the just brilliant, the, the heart feeling of working with that that veteran with the uniform and seeing his numbers come down, doing randomized controlled trials and seeing the numbers of hundreds of veterans coming down, launching the Veteran Stress Connection Project, and then seeing the numbers of tens of thousands of veterans coming down. You just cannot imagine how fulfilling a life of service is. So um, I train now, my main business is training EFT practitioners. I do that. I train hundreds of people every day, every, every year. And it's powerful to now use what I've learned in a training context to get this to tens of thousands of people a year. Yeah. I'm, <clears throat> I suspect that's, that's so. And this idea of not thinking you had something to say and, and then discovering that not only did you have something to say, you had something that people really wanted to hear. Yes. Um, I'll, I'll bet that's pretty gratifying. That's cool. What, when it comes to writing a book, what is your basic approach and how has it changed over the years? You know, I just want to tell you something before that about writing that I'm struggling with right now. And I haven't found a solution to this. I have to write my next book. I am having a hard time convincing people of just how happy they can get. And the gulf between what people aspire to and think they can get to and what, they, what research shows they really can get to is so enormous that it's very hard to explain to them. And, and the, the way that shows up, like, for example, in the studies of Mind to Matter, is that the difference between baseline gamma, gamma is the brainwave of integration, of compassion, of gratitude, positive emotions, joy. The amount of gamma in the brains of these adepts we study can go up 25-fold. And that's wow. too big a gulf to convince the average person that it's possible. If I said, you know, I can make you, you know, 25% happier, 50% happier, people might buy it. 25 times as happy is just too far for them to comprehend. I'm grappling with that problem now, and I haven't solved it. I'm determined to solve it. But um, that's just my, my current writing dilemma is I don't know how to convince people that there's a there there, that they can be 25 times as happy as their wildest dreams. So that's my big current challenge. <laughs> wow. Well, that's what I've heard Tony Robbins. I think this is exactly the kind of thing Tony Robbins calls a quality problem. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. you've got this yeah. something really profound to tell people and the challenge isn't necessarily telling them, it's getting them to believe it or yes. even be open to it. You know, and that reminds me, I have a friend who's a therapist and he said, 
when he went to school. Uh, he said he had one advisor who told him, you know, they trained him on all the practice, all the technique that he needed and, and gave him the education. But one of his advisors said, before you go out and you start your own practice working with real people, I just want you to know that the most difficult task you'll face is actually getting people to believe that they are both capable of giving and receiving love. Wow. And I was like that. And he said over decades that proved to be true, you know, that they were worthy or they were capable or whatever. It's like, and so in some ways your challenge sounds like it's parallel to, to my friends, not just with happiness, but with love. Yes. Yeah. And you can experience to have far more love, far more happiness than you might've imagined. Yeah. So what's your sense of how you will, how, like, how will you, how will you search for a solution? How do you think you're going to resolve that for yourself? I was wrestling with a problem when I wrote Genie Your Genes about how to share with people that we have multiple systems in our bodies, but that energy is much faster than matter. And I was talking, I said, what analogy can I give people to let them know that this neurochemical signaling in your nervous system with sodium and chloride ions going across the membrane, that's a mechanical way of signaling. And it's, you know, it's fairly fast. We have neurons that go to 1,000, 100 meters per second. We have energy, which is going the speed of light. So how do I convince them that energy is much quicker and a much quicker way to approach a lot of your, your challenges than plunking around at the level of the material field, mm-hmm. material world? So I was at a conference with a wonderful biologist called James Oshman, Jim Oshman. And I was just telling about this huge problem I was having doing this. We were at a party. Then we left the party. We're going to go drive back to the hotel. And I had my rental car. And I was walking up the rental car to drive me and Jim back to the hotel. And I just unlocked the car. Click, click, unlocked the car. And I looked at the key. And I realized, ah, I could take the key and put it in the lock and mechanically turn the lock and, and open the car. Or I can click the button and use energy to do it. And I have my analogy there. So genie in your jeans is a picture of a clicker and a car key. You know? So we, we just, as science writers, struggle with these things to find, and we find analogies for them. So I'm, I'm looking for an analogy, a series of analogies like that yeah. to make it real for people. Oh, that's, that's powerful. And, and that's one of the things I learned from Jack about you know, the reticular activating system. <laughs> and when yes. you've got it activated and just the process of living, something you know, will present itself. Something always happens. So that's great. Well, I will look forward to to what it is and how life is the co co creator with you in this in yes, this message. It is awesome. So, okay, let me let me actually jump to a different question for a moment, which is about your writing habits and routines. Um, first of all, do you write every day? I write every day, but uh, not to do with books. I write every day. Sometimes I'm writing. Um, science copy and like I may, may, may write uh, a piece for my newsletter, for, for instance, where I'm describing a study, like I'm the columnist for Unity Magazine, Unity Church Magazine, because I'm also an ordained minister. And so um, I need to write my column, and so I'll be writing about a study. So um, I'll write that, but then I'll have to write, a, I have to write a piece of marketing copy. I spent all, all this morning writing marketing copy for the Global Energy Healing Summit coming up. And so it's a very different mindset doing that totally different mindset writing a scientific paper. So I write different things, different days. It's, it's a real challenge to switch between these different formats. Yeah, I, I, I can imagine. Um, 
marketing copy is a little different, I'll bet, from some of the scientific and technical writing that you would do. And also, we don't, we don't do any hype in our marketing. Our, our, like I just emailed, I got, I got the swipe copy for the summer and I emailed them and said, you know, we can't say this is going to cure pain. Uh, we can say we're going to share methods that can cure pain. So let's, let's change that instead. So people know in our community that everything we say is evidence-based and we don't make hyperbolic claims like a lot of marketers do. So we just, we just don't go that route. And you know what? We have higher open rates, higher conversion rates, higher click-through rates than anybody on the planet almost because we're just honest about what's good about our stuff and we don't try and sell people, you know. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. What's your... What's your basic process for getting a book done? Now, I'm actually curious first on how you settle on a topic, like how you know, okay, this is a thing that I'm going to devote months or even years to, to researching and writing. So from the point of choosing the topic to structuring the book, to drafting the book, you know, researching the book, having it edited, you know, the layout, like anything and everything to do with how you actually get a book done and perhaps how that's changed, like how that's evolved over, over the many books you've written. Yeah, and there, there are those steps like reading, researching, writing, editing, and so on. And those are roughly, by the time you hold the book in your hand, you're maybe 25% of the way there. The other 75% is marketing the book. And so you are just going to be on a lot of summits, on a lot of podcasts, a lot of radio shows, doing a whole bunch of interviews. So if you if it's worth getting out there and doing that first 25% have the book published, you need to commit as an author to the 75%, which is marketing the book. You have to be there for your book. And it's like, you know, expecting someone else to market your book is like expecting somebody to raise your child. <laughs> oh, I've had a baby now. Can I, can I give this to somebody to raise? No, you've had a baby. Now you have the next 20 years cut out for you. So um, you need to put a lot. I, I spent roughly five years almost full-time working on Genie in Your Genes to put it on the map. So, but to go back to the writing question, um, what you want to do when you write is connect with a non-local mind. You want to meditate every day. I'll, if I have a really intense writing day, I'll, I'll meditate usually for more than an hour, maybe for two hours. And now I'm totally immersed in non-local mind. Non-local mind contains the information library of the universe. And you will start to find ideas there that are synchronistic, are automatic. Uh, I, I did a, an important interview with an important author yesterday, and I, uh, I didn't have any time to prepare. So he, 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 edited, he texted me right before the interview and said, Dawson, you promised me an outline and I have nothing. And when he said that to me, I realized my mind was blank. I had no idea what we were going to say. So we, we started the call and I said, here's what we'll talk about. And I just laid out the most brilliant outline for the call, totally from non-local mind, without any, any preparation whatsoever. And it's like, wow, non-local mind can do that. <laughs> <laughs> so get out of the way, get out your local mind out of the way, get your local self out of the way, quiet in the local mind, tune into non-local mind and just be part of that grand consciousness, one with the universe, and then channel its ideas, start typing, 
start ha- writing by hand, start dictating. Sometimes I'll just dictate things. Like I'm not a poet, but I've written five poems in the last two days. I don't know why. I'm just writing these poems. I'm just gushing with love and enthusiasm and joy. So um, turn it over to non-local mind and let your theme, your title, your your higher power. If you if you think of, if you if you if you're a believer in, in a personal God, make it God. I talked to a woman this morning. She she believes in Mother Mary. Great Mother Mary, white buffalo calf woman. Um, an archetype is is fine. It doesn't have to be religious. It can be an archetype. It can be Martin Luther King. It can be Harriet Tubman. It can be Mohandas Gandhi. Anyone you relate to, and then start to channel this immense wisdom of non-local through your your skill set, your your voice. And you will create brilliant things that way. Now, writing a science book is different because you have to also make it scrupulously correct. There cannot be one incorrect scientific claim in a science book. And so, and I'm more rigorous than most science writers about that. Everything in my books is completely evidence-based. And so I also have to do the chore of reading primary research and reading stuff written by people, sometimes they're Nobel laureates and they have an IQ of 200. How do I even comprehend this stuff? I really need non-local comprehension to comprehend it. Then I have to explain it to somebody who has an IQ of maybe 100. How do I do How do I bridge a 200 IQ Nobel laureate paper and a 100 IQ average reader? And that's my job as a science writer. So uh, I have that additional step of scientific rigor. I, I'm not just writing flights of fancy like the poetry. I have to make it rigorous, but I try and make it beautiful. And so um, after, after this brain, I, I was tuning into the universe one day, the, the infinite. I just felt as though this, 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 like this energy of science was just surrounding me. I saw I tuned into that energy in, in, in the non-local cosmos. And then right beside it was beauty and science and beauty. And I said, I'm going to write science books that are beautiful. They just read beautifully, the flowing poetry. So I, I rewrote this brain probably three times to make it beautiful. And that's why I do it, do it at the very end. I, I also send it out to, to, to peer reviewers who just catch any errors I've made in my, my facts. So that, that's my, my personal process. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I like to think for people who are following in your footsteps, people who aspire to write that just hearing this can not only give them inspiration, but help them anticipate the path ahead and to navigate that maybe in a shorter time or more enjoyably than they would otherwise. You talked about the importance of um, marketing and promotion as being three quarters of the work of you know getting a book out into the world. And, and I'm curious, what what have you learned about marketing and, and promoting and selling books that has served you well over the years? I asked my publisher and their publicists what is effective and what the best practices are of their most successful authors. And it turns out that there are some things that are just about useless. And so you, you find out what successful authors are doing and do that and don't do the, the stuff that is not effective. So talk to something knowledgeable, find out what is effective. Like in any sport and any uh, field of endeavor in any career, find out what's working and do that and avoid doing the stuff that's not working. So, so you go talk to those people and it changes. It changes every few months. What worked great a year ago, five years ago, does not work great now. 
and those publicists have their fingers on the pulse. So talk, talk to your publisher. If at all possible, get a publisher. Uh, you can self-publish successfully. There are a few people who do it, but if at all possible, work with a publisher. If you can work with a big publisher with a decent marketing department, then you'll have all the resources of, of that, that person. And so work with people who can guide you in that way. Do not try and reinvent the book publicity wheel all by yourself from scratch. It'll be unsuccessful and frustrating for you in the extreme. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. Well, my last, my last question for you here on this writing and creativity um, line of, of thought and question is, is just what advice or uh, encouragement do you leave anybody listening with who's either in the process of getting their book done, maybe what's been called the messy middle, <laughs> or it's a dream they've been harboring for a long time and they haven't yet embarked on that journey. What advice or encouragement do you offer to anyone listening who's in one of those situations? What I recommend in my books is actually antithetical to a lot of coaching practice because people say set goals. And I say, don't set goals. I say, tune into your higher self, your higher power, the universe, the infinite, and let the infinite set your goals. Don't create a vision board for yourself. No, no vision boards, no affirmations. Tune into the infinite. What is the universe affirming for you, brilliant? What is the universe affirming for me, Dawson? What is the universe affirming for any of us listening today? It's affirming our highest possible good. And it has a much higher vision for you than your local self could ever dream up. So if you're in that messy middle and you're trying to create something, forget about the affirmations, forget about the discipline, forget about the trying to make things happen. Just surrender, surrender, just surrender to your higher power, surrender to the infinite and the infinite, you then become an instrument to, for the infinite. Gene Houston said that uh, what very few people know is that Jean Houston was an aspiring actress in her 20s. She's now in her, in her 80s and still going strong. And, but she was suicidal at one point after her acting career really wasn't going very well. And she hit that point of surrender one day and she tuned into the infinite. And the infinite said to her, Jean, it's all going to be okay. And that's when she began to surrender. And her whole life began to shift and she began to do the remarkable work she's done in the world for the last 60 years. And so you want to just surrender and breathe and be and connect and have a relationship with the infinite. In what I teach, I'm, I'm, I'm working on a, a course now and what we're doing is just the way I systematized EFT in the early 2000s, I'm now, I'm now reading and looking at all of the teachings on enlightenment. I'm building it into a system that's called the short path to oneness. And it's so interesting to read the works of these great writers, but then try and put it into a system. And there are certain things you do, you surrender to that, that higher power. And the analogy I use there, I did find my analogy for chapter one of the short path. And chapter one of the short path is, imagine you have an uncle and your uncle is a billionaire and your uncle is elderly and sick and lives in the same town as you are. And it's pretty obvious your uncle is gonna kick the bucket fairly soon. And so he might leave you in his will. He might, might be money coming to you and a lot of money coming, millions of dollars from your uncle. And so you are probably, he lives in the same town as you, you're probably gonna go visit him. You're probably gonna 
make him some chocolate chip cookies on his birthday. You're going to cultivate a relationship with your billionaire uncle. And the benefit that might flow to you from doing that is enormous. And most people are not cultivating any kind of relationship with their higher power. They're saying, I don't have time to meditate. It's like saying, I don't have time to go spend 15 minutes with my billionaire uncle. Really? You don't? You don't have time to do that? You absolutely need to prioritize that part of your connection. So you are rich beyond measure in terms of spirit, in terms of money, in terms of prosperity, in terms of imagination and creativity. You have to cultivate a relationship, though, with that. If you don't show up meditation, you're like the kid who isn't showing up for class. If you don't show up for class, the teacher can't teach you a darn thing. So you're going to show up for class in the front row, pay attention, use this faculty of attention. We all have this attention ability, focus on that relationship with your higher power, your higher self. That's what my short path course does. It trains you to make that your focus. And saying, I don't have time for meditation is like saying, I don't have time to go sit with my billionaire uncle for a little while this week. That's the source of your, your wealth. It's the source of your identity. It's the source of who you are. As you surrender to the infinite, the infinite will change your brain. 10% growth in that emotion regulation circuit in a month. Do it for a year. You're going to have a whole different set of wiring in your brain. And so you want to do that. And then what you'll create in that messy middle will be genius at a level which you can't even imagine when you're stuck at that, that level. It'll be a whole different book, a whole different project, a whole different everything. So that's how you create. That's, that's where you create from, that relationship with your higher power and with the infinite. Cultivate that first. Everything creative will spring from that. That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you for that. Okay. Well, Dawson, thank you so much for sharing so generously of your time and your wisdom and your energy. I've really enjoyed this. I've learned a lot from you and uh, I'm looking forward to sharing a lot of what I've learned from you with, with others. <laughs> so thank you. I'm so grateful. And I, I love the work you're doing too, brilliant. And the way you're approaching it. Thank you so much for your inspired approach to sharing with your community and building that community. And I want that community to be big and strong and inspired. So thank you for your role in making that happen. Hey, thanks so much for listening to this episode of the school for good living podcast. Before you take off, I just want to extend an invitation to you. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life still isn't working for many people. Whether it's here in the developed world where we deal with depression, anxiety, loneliness, addiction, divorce, unfulfilling jobs or relationships that don't work, or in the developing world where so many people still don't have access to basic things like clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or they live in conflict zones, there are a lot of people on this planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, or even if your life is working, but you have the sense that it could work better, consider signing up for the School for Good Living's Transformational Coaching Program. It's something I've designed to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated, or you've gone through a divorce, or you've gotten married, headed into retirement, starting a business, been married for a long time, whatever. No matter where you are in life, this nine-month program will give you the opportunity to go deep in every area of your life, to explore life's big questions, to create answers for yourself. 
in a community of other growth-minded individuals. And it can help you get clarity and be accountable to realize more of your unrealized potential. It can also help you find and maintain motivation. In short, it's designed to help you live with greater health, happiness, and meaning so that you can be, do, have, and give more. Visit goodliving.com to learn more or to sign up today.